God, we thank you for these people here, and we pray, God, that as we go through your word in 1 Samuel 16, that you would speak to us through your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would bless everyone here, and through the various trials and difficulties that people face, I pray, Lord, that they would be hopeful in you, and that they would find joy and strength in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are returning back to 1 Samuel. We took a little break. Um, and we did Habakkuk for uh, several weeks because of what was happening in our community and what was happening in our church immediately and felt the Lord was moving me to teach through Habakkuk and that's what we did. So now we're returning to it and, and it happens to be at a really great transition point in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15 we, we started to see this uh, transition of, of Saul moving away from this leadership role and, and then the introduction of David in 1 Samuel 16. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. So back in, uh, in chapter 15, God was, God was grieved that he made Saul king over Israel. And Saul had become this corrupt leader who, who, who kind of sold out to power, who sold out to his position and, and being religious rather than having a heart for God. So we find that Samuel mourned over Saul because he saw how this guy, this, this, this man that he loved really deeply, how he changed for the worse. And he saw this whole transition from the guy who, who was hidden behind the luggage and had to be pulled out to now this pretty proud guy. And Samuel saw firsthand that this, this king government, this monarchy thing just wasn't working out and, and he wasn't for it. And he told them about it, and, and it just wasn't working. And who knows what's going to happen to Israel now? So here we are, starting in verse 1, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The point here is that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. As Saul was deteriorating, as he was getting more and more corrupt, Samuel must have been wondering, what would happen now if an enemy were to come into Israel and attack us? Since, since God's not behind the leader anymore, God's not behind Saul anymore, what would happen? Would we fall to our enemies? And he must have had all these unsettling thoughts in his mind about what's going to happen to us but in verse 1, it seems as though God is telling Samuel, Samuel, I know what's up. I, I'm, I'm not surprised. I know what happens next. Now you go to Bethlehem to Jesse because he has a son there that we're going to anoint king. And there's a, a bunch of disastrous things that have taken place before we get here and, and things seem to be falling apart in Israel. But God is in the middle of all that stuff to tell Samuel what to do next. And not even a king's failure will stop the kingdom of God from being ushered in. And through this mess, God is going to provide another king in one of Jesse's sons. And within all this discouraging stuff that happened, God provided everything that the people needed. And something about God is, is He's never surprised. God is never surprised. He knows exactly what the next steps are. God is never caught off guard. and He's never at a place where He doesn't know what to do. He's like, oh, oh, what do I do? That's not God. He knows what He's going to do next. And it's the same for the state of the church. 
And generally speaking, the state of the church is pretty sad in some places. So, so we need to keep this in mind just for encouragement's sake. That God is not surprised. He's not caught off guard. But He actually knows what He's doing. And some of us need to hear this regarding our personal lives. That God knows the next steps for our life. And He's not caught off guard with the things that are happening to us, with the things that are happening in our families. He's not caught off guard by that stuff. And He actually has things under control. Verse 2, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. And here we see Samuel's fears. He's afraid that Saul will kill him if he finds out what Samuel was going to do. Saul, Saul had um, his guys out and about, you know, making sure that things in his kingdom were, were going okay. And, and, and if they saw Samuel doing something questionable, if, if something looked suspicious, they would question him because Saul's kind of on edge right now. He's, he's just not himself right now. He's, he's really on edge. So, so Saul would more, would more than likely kill Samuel if he knew Samuel was going to Bethlehem to anoint another king to be his successor. Now, now some people here would think, what Samuel was instructed to do would, would be unethical. Right? That, that Samuel was saying, I, I, I'm taking this heifer to have a church service. But he would leave out all the other details. And, and, and you know, that's unethical. What if someone asked you this stuff and you weren't that open to tell them all this stuff? And some would question the ethics of this. But I don't think there's an ethical dilemma here. Because I don't think Samuel is obligated to tell Saul or his guys everything that God has instructed him to do in Bethlehem. I don't think he's obligated. Yes, he is to speak the truth. I mean, he's not to lie about it. But ethically, he doesn't have to divulge everything, every single detail of the plans that God has given to him. And notice how God was gracious with Samuel's fears. And God gave him a way out if he were to be questioned. You, you see, you don't have to go on and on and on and on and answering someone's questions Answer the question to the point, but, it, but you don't have to vomit everything about your thoughts and everything inside your heart and all that stuff. For example, if you are invited to attend an installation for a brand new veterinary hospital and, because they're, they're putting in a new wing for cats, but you hate cats, you simply decline the invitation, right? You, you, you don't give every single detail as to why you don't want to be at this event. Right? All you have to do is mark the box. No, I'm not able to attend. Thank you. Right? That's all you got to do. You don't have to write in the space next to the box and behind the invitation. You know why? It's really because I hate cats. I despise them. They make my asthma act up. I, I've been attacked by them several times. I have, I have scars to prove it. And... That hospital is a total waste of money. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is check the box, no. Right? And, and it's the same for wedding invitations. And, and whatever types of celebratory invitations, like baby showers or anything like that, you don't have to vent why you're not attending. 
I'm not attending because I don't like that guy you're dating that you're now engaged to and now you're marrying. He chews with his mouth open. His clothes are too tight. You just mark, no, I can't attend. Right? You don't have to vent everything on your mind. So it's perfectly ethical for Samuel to say what God told him to say. But, but what's important here to point out is, is Samuel, the, the servant of God, is fearful. Samuel is fearful. And, and God addressed his fears. God knew Samuel's fears. God knows our fears. And you notice that God didn't ridicule him or belittle Samuel uh, for his fears, for his uncertainty. He didn't make comparisons as to whom he should be like. God didn't say, you should be more like this or more like that. God doesn't place doubt or, or criticism or judgment on Samuel for his fears. Rather, God comes down and he, and he meets Samuel in the midst of his fears. Right in the middle of his fears. God is so great. There's a lesson here for those of us who are parents or teachers or, or just in some sort of authority over someone. He, God is so gracious and loving. He doesn't mock us in our fears, in our uncertainties. And he's so approachable. He's so available. He's just a prayer away. You don't have to be worried about the type of relationship that you have with him. He provides us this environment where, where we can approach him in, in total openness and honesty that no matter what your fears are, no matter what your doubts or uncertainties are, you can approach Him and, and not worry about Him opposing you or coming against you. And he'll, He will support you exactly where you're at. And He won't punish you or take advantage of the stuff that you share with Him or use what you shared with Him against you for being vulnerable with Him. He's not like that. God's not like that. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. We see here in the verses that the choices God makes, they're, they're unexpected. They're unpredictable. God rejected those who we would see as obvious choices. Right, looking back at verse 6, we're introduced to Jesse's eldest son, Eliab. And in verse 6, we're told that Samuel thought to himself, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And when Samuel saw Eliab, he saw the firstborn. And in the Middle Eastern culture and most Asian cultures, the firstborn son is, is the most important child. So Samuel thought to himself, that's him. It has to be him. That's the new king. But what does God say to Samuel in verse 7? This is really important. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And it seems that Eliab was this fine, physical specimen of a man. He was tall, well-built, good-looking. He was fine. But we've seen that before, haven't we? We saw that before. Remember Saul? Saul was fine. He was a fine physical specimen of a man. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 23 through 24. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Oh, he's dreamy. <laughs> and, and, and Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. He's fine. <laughs> and all the people shouted, Long live the king! So now Samuel sees this similar physical traits in Eliab, and he thinks to himself, There he is, that gorgeous piece of man right there. There he is. He's gorgeous. And if I ever saw a king, that's him. But God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. In Hebrew, it's the word levav. Levav is also, is also interpreted as, as our mind, as our thinking, as our intelligence, our conscience, which includes our emotions. And, and it relates more to our, our consciousness and our logic. It's not to say that God doesn't see our outward appearances. Of course He does. You think He's just like, oh, I don't see anything. I just see heart. He sees your outward appearance. He does. Obviously He does. But He doesn't just see the outward appearance. God also sees the very mind of an individual. He sees our thinking. He sees our knowledge. He sees our, our intelligence. He sees our reflections. He sees our memory. Now, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's kind of freaky too. But it's amazing. Like, God actually knows what I... Oh, stop thinking. Oh, like, can you imagine if you were like... Looking at some girl you're attracted to, guys, if you're looking at some girl you're attracted to, and, and you're like, and if she knew what you were thinking? Uh, well, how well do you have to know someone to know their mind? Pretty well. Pretty well. You know, some of you have been married for a while, you still don't know your spouse's mind. Right? And, and to know what they actually think, how they think, how they process things, what they know, what they memorize, everything they've learned in their life, all that stuff. And God knows. And God knows us so well, but He looks beyond the outward appearance. He knows everything inside. That's just so crazy that, that God can know us so well, but He still loves us so deeply. All the junk in here, He still loves me. And some of us have sick minds. Right? We were sick. Seriously. I've counseled some of you. You're really sick. Yet, yet, yet He still loves us so much. He sent Jesus to die for our sins that we can have a relationship with God. That's amazing. It's not simply like, oh, cute. I'm going to die for Him. He knows everything. Everything He knows. And He still chose and He accepts us fully, even though we, we have these sick thoughts. 
and, and he, he knows that we're not good, but that's God. That's God. So often we look at the outward appearance. We look at what people have done, what their experiences are, and we make judgments off of those things. But God looks deeper than that. God had someone else in mind instead of the eldest son who, who had more experience, who was probably wiser. He lived longer. And, and, and he had more to offer. He had more life experience. He had all this stuff to offer. But God looks deeper. God doesn't leave out potential. And if Samuel had his way, he, he would have anointed Eliab. Right? And, then, and then we would have had Saul, part deux. Right? Uh, tragedy strikes again. And, and it would have been all over again. And God wasn't interested in having a repeat of Saul. He, he wasn't looking at the outward appearance. He was looking at the heart. Besides, God doesn't always choose the obvious, does He? He doesn't always choose the obvious. And one other thing this tells us is that even the greatest, the most qualified, the most wise, the most spiritual, the most experienced and God-fearing leaders like Samuel, they're fallible. They're imperfect. And Samuel's like one of the most perfect men in the Bible, I think. Like after, besides Jesus, I'm like, Samuel's right up there. And, and, and no matter how great a leader we are or we think that we are, if, we, if we're just left to our own wisdom and our own experiences and our own educations, whatever, not even a Samuel can run the kingdom of God well. We're imperfect. Samuel is way above us. Yet he couldn't make this decision. And the finest of human leaders, they are fallible. So we're not to make human leaders and people we look up to uh, because of their wisdom, their experience, their education, whatever, their resume, whatever. We're not to make these model people our idols. Keep them as models. Don't lift them up as idols. And, and we have this danger of doing that in our, in our society and in our churches. It, it may be someone who has been a great help to us spiritually. And in our day, we use terms like disciple or mentor or coach. And, and these people have been great to help us in our season of life or throughout our life. But sometimes we place these people on, on too high of a pedestal because of their wisdom or their experience that they bring to the table. And, and then instead of just a, a mentor or coach or disciple, we've elevated them to be an idol. Be careful. Be careful with this because when your model becomes an idol, they will always, always disappoint you. Always. What else does this tell us? Well, it shows us how caring our God is to us by, by preventing our plans from happening. Did you notice how God prevented Samuel from making a terrible mistake? Now, does God do this for us in our lives? Are there times in our life where, where we can look back and recall when God put a blockade in the way of our decisions? That at that moment in time, if that blockade wasn't there, we would be ruined right now. Have we ever thanked God for what He hasn't allowed to happen? Oftentimes we thank God for certain things that happen in our life, right? Like your children or 
or maybe not at your spouse or, or maybe not but but often we often we thank him for the things he he allowed in our life but how often do we thank him for the things he didn't allow in our life and this is what we see here in the interaction between God and Samuel see I can one of the decisions that I think saved me was um, I remember the first time I was approached by a gang to be jumped into the gang. And I was in junior high, a long time ago, and I went to a pr- pretty rough middle school. I was in seventh grade there before my parents uh, kind of saw what was happening there, and they were like, okay, we're out of here. And so they moved us to a safer school district my eighth grade year. But it wasn't long after that that a friend of mine that was on the wrestling team with me was, was in a car. And, and, and a rival gang shot into that car and made my friend a quadriplegic. And I could have very well been in that car because it all happened at the same time. And if it weren't for another one of my mom's uh, friends waiting for me to give me a ride home and kind of pressuring me to hurry up and stuff like that, I could have very well joined the gang and, and been in that car that got shot up by a rival gang. And maybe not be here, maybe be a quadriplegic, I don't know. I don't know. Because I really wanted to be in that gang, and I know it's a stupid thing, but back in that time, I really wanted to be in that. It was cool. All these older guys and, and from the high school coming over, recruiting, all the cool kids from my school, all the tough guys from my school and recruiting them, and I wanted to be a part of that group. But I was scared because I would see these kids that got jumped into the gang um, come back, all bruised up, cut up, limping. Um, sometimes I wouldn't see them for a while, and then they'd have casts on them. Um, it, I was scared. But you know what I was scared more of? My mom. <laughs> yeah, that's a mean ninja, my mom. <clears throat> and you talk about blockades in my life. Boom, mom. Right? And... God, God placed a couple blockades in my life in the form of my ninja mom and her ninja friend that was giving me a ride home. Get in here. Okay. So the kid came pick me up, from, preventing me from making a decision that would have likely been disastrous. I would have most likely been in that car with him. So we see that God often rejects the obvious in not choosing Eliab. He often presents disastrous in preventing Samuel from choosing who we would think should be chosen. And he often does things unconventionally, as, as we will see in the following verses, starting verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. God is so unconventional. You see the choice he made in David? He didn't even think... uh, David's dad, Jesse, he didn't even think that David was important enough to call over with the rest of his seven brothers. He didn't even think. The youngest of eight boys, keeping the sheep, the task left for the most insignificant servant. 
But after God rejected all of Jesse's sons who were present with Samuel, Samuel had to ask the next logical question, right? Um, Is this all? You don't have any more sons? Are these all your sons? And and so, so Jesse probably got a little bit embarrassed. And he was like, you don't mean the little shepherd kid, right? I mean... Yeah, he has beautiful eyes, but he's just a little boy. And, and there remains yet the, the, the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Yeah, I have another one, but, but he's the youngest. And, and we use him to keep the sheep. You don't want that guy. In other, in other words, um, you want this guy. You want my oldest, right? You don't, you don't want that guy. Because he doesn't matter. He's a little shepherd boy. But it's when, when this keeper of sheep, who's the youngest of all the brothers, comes in that the Lord said in verse 12, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And you also notice in verse 12 that David was described as ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now what does that mean? Besides, Jesse and his wife had good genetics. Well, when God rejected Eliab, who, who was that fine specimen of a man, tall, well-built, handsome, yeah. GQ guy. It's not, it's not that God is saying you have to be short and out of shape and ugly to be chosen by God to be used for His service. It's not saying that either. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. It means the other side too, okay? So you don't have to worry about that if you're not up to par. But David, David was a good-looking guy. He had beautiful eyes. And, you know, hound dog eyes, puppy dog eyes. Oh, look at him. He's so cute. But it means that God doesn't just look at the physical externals, right? Those aren't prerequisites uh, to be chosen by God for His service, whether you're on one end of the spectrum or the other. That, that, That has nothing to do with it. For you see how God is so unconventional, because we tend to do that. Like, yeah, that guy looks like he fits the bill. He holds himself confidently and all this stuff. And he chose the youngest who kept the sheep. The worst job you could have. You couldn't start any lower than being a shepherd. Right? And, he, and, and it was, this is just really punk rock of God. But, but yet this is vintage God. This is how God is. Who God chooses often surprises us. And he often chooses people we would never choose. And he often does these unexpected things. And that's just how God tends to be. And here's, here's one example of it. Can you imagine his seven other brothers there watching all of this? Because they were there, right? They were in the midst of this. And they must have been like, what? That guy? I used, I used to give him wedgies. Like, what? That guy? Like, verse 13 tells us that, that Samuel took this horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. They must have just like, their jaws must have dropped. Like, what? Are you kidding? He's going to be my king? No way. But God doesn't seem to pay attention to kind of like our own boring human standards. God is just so fascinating, isn't he? He's fascinating. Not only does he work in fascinating ways, but he himself, he is fascinating. Now, have we lost our fascination with God? Have we lost that? Because if any of you have, it's really hard to adore God if you're not fascinated by God. And if you don't adore God, it's really hard for you to worship God. And you know what? God is worthy of our worship. 
God is worthy of our worship. Our God, who works in these amazing, unexpected, unconventional, extraordinary, unpredictable ways, He gives value, dignity, respect, honor to a shepherd boy who wasn't thought highly enough to be even invited from his own family, his own dad, to be invited to a sacrifice with Samuel. See, our knee should be bent in fascination, in adoration, in worship to a God like that. He's worthy. And in the rest of this chapter, we'll see how God is ironic. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. An evil spirit from the Lord. Excuse me? Evil spirit from the Lord? What? Let me try to explain. You're all demon-possessed. No, I'm kidding. So, the evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul and his... And this evil spirit, what can this be interpreted as? It can be interpreted as this miserable, harmful, distrustful spirit. But it's not necessarily a morally evil spirit, if that makes any sense. It was, a, it was a type of a disposition of spirit that God gave Saul, which, which was part of Saul's judgment. It was his judgment for his rebellion. And it's an evil spirit that tormented him. It, here, here's a guy who, who turned away from God and now is reaping the judgment from God because he turned away from God. So he, obviously it's miserable. Obviously it's tormenting. He's turning away. And this torment is a sign of God's judgment. And it, it's not a moral evil spirit. But what is happening to Saul is, is what we would deem as evil in what, what it's doing to Saul. What it's doing to Saul is not good. It's tormenting him. It's evil. Saul being tormented. And, and there's a darkness here. And the Bible is letting us know that it's not a pleasant thing that's happening to Saul. Saul was tormented. And so it's appropriately termed evil because of what it's doing to him. It's not good. Verse 15, And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. You see how Saul's servants are are dealing with the symptoms rather than the cause of his problems? The heart is Saul's problem. The heart Changing our thinking. Changing what we know. Right? Putting in some good knowledge into our minds through studying the Word, through wise counsel, through prayer. Thinking and meditating about the things of God. Reflecting in our worship and in our studies. Memorizing scriptures. Doing things to help change our heart. Instead of those things that just focus on symptoms. So... So we have addiction problems, so we go to a 12-step program. We have marital problems, so we go to counseling. We have anger problems, so we go to anger management class. They're all helpful. They're all needed. But it only helps the symptoms sometimes because it's not dealing with the heart. And there isn't this new understanding from your heart, and if that doesn't change, you're only stopping the runny nose. It's it's not long-lasting, and sometimes they don't work at all. You attend these things, I've met people attending these things over and over again, they still struggle with the same stuff. The thing that needs to change is the heart. 
And you, you can stop the runny nose, but, but you need to get rid of the virus. There needs to be a heart change. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Do you see the irony here? Here we have this rejected king, Saul, who is being cared for and calmed and comforted by his replacement, David. Isn't that ironic? The faithful and chosen king David is the one keeping the rejected king Saul from completely falling apart. And there's a pattern here as this happens to us as well in our time. And so let me try to explain. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. Right? He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt doesn't necessarily heal. What salt does is it helps things from getting worse by by slowing the pace of the deterioration, right? And so it slows down the rot, right, from its normal speed. And it doesn't make things sterile, but it serves as an antiseptic. But it doesn't make it sterile. See, a sterile environment is, is free from any microorganisms, but salt, it acts as an antiseptic in that it, it helps reduce or prevent infection by, by reducing that growth of the microorganism. See, salt slows down, let's say, corruption. But it doesn't make things sterile. It doesn't completely wipe it out. So in a sense, that's what we do as disciples of Jesus. We are the salt of the earth. We, like David, help the world from spoiling as fast as it would if, it were, if we weren't in it. We're meant to be salt of the earth. So, so if we're not acting salty, we're not performing our duty as disciples of Jesus. Now, How do we keep our world from becoming more rotten than it could be? Well, part of it is how we act as salt it, by, by going about living our life in a Christ-like manner. For example, we don't commit adultery. That doesn't solve the problem of immorality. Immorality is still around us in our world. But, but it does make one marriage. It does make one household. It does make one family in the neighborhood that we live in one spot that doesn't have that corruption. And to that degree, it slows down the rot. It slows down the decay. It's not this rampant thing that's just happening. So in our text, we, ha- we have this rejected King Saul being ministered to by his successor, David, the chosen king. Now, how are we to respond or apply the word of God today? Well, I, I think there are many ways that this text can apply to our lives, and it might be different for each one of you. But, but what sticks out for me is a fascination with God. 
to be fascinated that, that God's ways aren't our ways, yet he, he causes amazing things to happen. He chose the least important boy of the family, the one who took care of the sheep for the family, to be king of his people. And there are many examples of God doing this, and, and his choices are fascinating. Genesis. God chose Jacob, the second son. And Jacob's pretty messed up. If you read through Genesis, you're like, God, that guy? Holy moly. And, and God chose Ehud in Judges chapter 3, who was left-handed. Woo! You left-handed people. What does that tell us? It tells us he's left-handed because back then being left-handed just wasn't very acceptable. You thought of weird. It's like controlling things with your feet. Like, it's weird. The right hand was thought to be better of the two hands, so it was weird. It was like, left-handed dude right there. So, and you go to the next chapter. God chose Deborah in Judges chapter 4. A woman to lead the military. Unheard of. Amazing. Fascinating, right? Really strange. Really out of the ordinary. God chooses Gideon two chapters later in Judges 6. Gideon, who was a coward, right? But God chose the coward to lead an army. You jump over to Judges chapter 11. Jephthah. Or who? Jephthah. Who was the son of a harlot. And, and when he was called to deliver Israel, he was a bandit. Crazy. God's crazy. In the Gospels, Jesus, born in a cave to an illegitimate mother. That's my God. That's my Savior. That's who died for my sins. Are you kidding? Really? He was educated in the most horrible rabbinical school in Judea, which was in Galilee. Why do you think the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee? In Matthew chapter 21, verse 11. Why did they say in John chapter 7, verse 41, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And why did they say in John chapter 7, verse 52, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee? It's impossible. No way. Those weren't compliments. God seems to choose people that no one else would seem to choose. He looks at more than the outward appearance, and he always makes good decisions. All you got to do is look at Jesus. God chooses whom we wouldn't even consider. And you, it's all through the book of Judges and Jacob and Genesis. It's all over the Bible, really. And he gives people value. He gives people purpose. He gives people dignity, honor. He's fascinating. And may that fascination lead us to an adoration of God. And may that fascination and that adoration of God, may that lead us into worship of God. God is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be more like you. And not just seeing the outward appearance, but looking at the heart. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the discernment for that when people come into our life. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us discernment about um, how we think of ourselves and how we think of our leaders. Because ultimately, Lord, you, you are the, the chief shepherd. You are the, 
You are the King, and we follow you. We don't follow people. We pray, Lord, that you would bless everyone here, that they would be hopeful and encouraged, that if they feel that they are the eighth son, the shepherd boy, they're actually in a good place. In Jesus' name, amen.